chapter 4, and we will read from verses 1 to 6. As you open your Bibles, just to put in context, particularly for those who might be visiting us, I have taken uh, two sermons. This is the third now, and uh, I think I only have one more left, uh, but... Uh, our family will be leaving, God's willing, in the beginning of September uh, to go to Washington, D.C., and then finally to Portugal. And uh, as your pastor coming to the end of my role and office among you, I thought it would be wise to use my last sermons as kind of last words, concerns and exhortations to you. So I will take, uh, I took two Sundays uh, with the issue of eldership, particularly of a full-time pastor. I wanted to take the issue also of unity, as we will see today in Ephesians 4. But before we read the Word of God and meditate upon it, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, the people that you have redeemed all around the world is gathered in local congregations to worship you. We are united in a bond that had and was purchased with a high price, the cross and the blood of your Son. And so our bond was made with his blood so that we might be united to him and united to him, united to one another. So, Father, as we meditate upon your word, give us eyes to see, give us minds that can understand, hearts that might receive it and apply it. And, Father, as your church thinks about the calling that you have gave us and the proper way to walk in it, that you might protect us, Father. We are weak and we are sinful. Protect your church. Protect this local church and the churches around the world so that the way that we live might be proper in a good representation of the great calling that you have given us, of the precious gospel of the good news that have reconciled us to you and to one another. In Christ's name, amen. Ephesians 4, 1 to 6. Just keep in mind right from the beginning that we're starting in the middle of the letter, so it means that there is something before, but we will go there uh, later on. But just keep that in mind because uh, the text starts of something that came before. And I didn't turn on my mic, did I? Okay, we're on now. Sorry. Okay. Are we good? Good. Ephesians 4, 1 to 6. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called in the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, 
one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Jones County on this state uh, is said, I don't know how true this, this is, but it's said to be the place on earth with more Christian churches than anywhere else. According to a 2010 census, the whole county had a population of around 68,000 people. But only on this county, there were 59 Southern Baptist churches only in the county. I'm only talking about Southern Baptist churches. Which means, so taking out all the other Baptist churches and all the other denominations or even any other religious expression, this means that there is an SBC church for each 1,150 people in the county. Just in the way of comparison, Hines County has around 243,000 people, and there are around 70 Southern Baptist churches in, in the county, which means a church per 3,500 people in the county, so three times less than, John, than Jones County. However, Portugal has a population of 10.5 million people, and there are only 75 Baptist or churches that are part of the Portuguese Baptist Convention. Do you know what that means? It means that there is a church only for each 145,000 people, which means 126 times less than in Jones County. You see, that means that proportionally Jones County has 126 churches for each one church in Portugal. Or put it in another way, Jones County, with a population of 68,000 people, has almost the same amount of churches that Portugal has with a population of 10 million. It's probably a pretty holy place, wouldn't you say that? But in one of my visits to Laurel, a sister was commenting on this religious reality and the reality that she lived all her life. And perhaps without even noticing, she, that, she said something that is not only true, but sobering, a lucid comment about the situation of the county. She said to me, we are the county with more churches than any other county in the country. But you see, Tiago, don't think that we are more spiritual than anyone else. We just can't get along with each other. And this, this saying sticked in my head till today. Don't think we're more spiritual than anyone else. We can't just stick with each other for a long time. You see, in Portugal... People make jokes saying that Baptists plant more churches by division than multiplication. In Jackson, you just need to ask Pastor Thomas. He will go around and he will have a lot of stories. That church was a division from that church and that church this and that church that. You see, division is unfortunately common and throughout history as it is today in Christian churches. But opposite to that picture of division 
we come to chapter 4 of Paul's letter to the Ephesians. And Paul is exhorting Christians to live in unity. How is this possible? That Christians are supposed to live in unity, but we see continual division. I want to start by affirming that if Scripture commands us and exhorts us to live in unity, it is because it's not just a nice but unrealistic expectation. Let me just start to say that unity among Christians is a visible representation of the gospel itself. Perhaps there is no wonder then why the enemy is so delighted every time division occurs in the church. You see, Paul calls, see verse 1, that this is the worthy manner or the worthy way of the call to which you have been called. Which means this is the only appropriate way to live according to the Christian faith, is to live in unity. So that we can understand this, I would like to lead you in three simple truths. The third will be longer for the reasons that I hope will be clear later on. But just three simple truths. One, a sinful people in a broken world. Number two, we will see a merciful, gracious, and loving God. And finally, a new redeemed people. Let's start by the dark reality then. A sinful people in a broken world. I think we will all recognize that. We don't need, I think, to argue much about this. We live in a broken world. This is a reality that we know and experience every day. People had difficulty to get along with each other. All of us, without exception, have sinned against someone. And we have been offended by someone. The human sinful nature is prone to division, to brokenness. One way, you see, that we can define sin, and just keep in mind that there are many ways that we can define it. They are complementary. They don't contradict one another. But one of the ways that we can define it is broken relationships both vertically and horizontally. We can define sin that way. Just think about the nature of sin. What happens when we sin? Our relationship with God is severed. This is what happened in the fall. Adam and Eve, Eve's sin, broke their perfect relationship with God. They were expelled from the Garden of Eden. They were expelled from the presence of God. They could no longer be in the presence of a perfect and holy God. So sin has this vertical aspect to it that it breaks our relationship with God. But sin also affects human relationships on a horizontal level. The original sin included also this aspect. Keep that in mind. Adam and Eve's marriage failed miserably. It was not just an individual failure. They failed as a couple. Adam sinned against Eve and Eve against Adam because they did not fulfill their roles, their God-given roles at that time. And the consequences were extended to all humankind. Just think that just after the fall, we see that the rebellion of Genesis 3 is played out in the following chapter. How? In the first murder brother against brother. Our relationships with other people, even those close to us, they are not perfect. 
There is ungodliness and selfishness and pride and arrogance and violence. It is so universal, I think, that we don't need to argue about it. I think we can all agree in different degrees in one way or another, but sin and broken relationships, it's a universal experience. And this is extended to all creation. Actually, the expression that the Apostle Paul uses in Romans 8 is that creation is groaning. So it has affected our relationship with God, with one another, and has affected the whole creation. Creation is under the curse of sin. It has affected all areas of life. So it should be no wonder then in this vertical and horizontal relationship that the law of God, the perfect law of law of God, can be summarized in just two commands, which are love God, love neighbor. Right? This is the opposite of sin. You see, sin, therefore, in this way, can be said to be failing to love God or failing to love neighbor. If people would fulfill the, Lord, the law perfectly, it would mean that we would live in harmony, not in broken relations. You see, this is at the beginning of the Bible's narrative. It's not the starting point. The starting point is Genesis 1 and 2, which is God's perfect recreation, where He created human beings to live in a perfect relationship with Him and with one another. But right on the third chapter, we have the bad news, which is the fall, which is original sin, which is what you and I experience every single day, broken relationships. But fortunately, this is not the end of the story. We come to point number two, a merciful, gracious, and loving God. This is the other side of the narrative. Against this dark background of human fallen nature is God. If sin's consequence is brokenness, division, enmity, then we can say that the solution must be the opposite. We must have reconciliation. We must have communion. We must have fellowship. These are the opposite of sin. Can you understand that? The Hebrew word you see for peace is shalom. Its meaning is vast. It means wholeness, well-being, even prosperity. It's very interesting, though, that these concepts are tied with the notion of peace with God and with other people. Because there can be no true prosperity and wholeness if there are broken relationships. That means division. It became such a significant word for the Israelites that the way that people even greet each other, Jews, today, still today, is shalom, is peace. You see, in Scripture, shalom is a free gift of God. We did not earn it. It was given to us. You see, the new covenant, particularly, is called a covenant of peace. We usually call it a covenant of grace. But do not forget that Scripture calls it a covenant of peace because it is so proper that peace is offered to us when the opposite, which is sin, 
severed and broken relationships with God and with one another. So what do we need? We need peace. And that is a free gift of God. We read this in Ezekiel 37. And I will make a covenant of peace with them. It shall be an everlasting covenant with them. And I will set them in their land and multiply them. And will set my sanctuary, sanctuary is dwelling place, in their midst forever. My dwelling place shall be with them. And I will be their God. And they shall be my people. You see, it's always in the midst and in the context of sin that is breaking our relationship with God and with one another. It is in the midst of this brokenness that God comes and offers peace. You see, the message of the gospel is a message of reconciliation, of actually the restoration of all creation. This is what we read in 2 Corinthians 5, 18-20. All this is from God. You see, did not come from us, not our invention. We are not able to bring it about. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to Himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. And then it, it explains what this means. That is, verse 19, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to Himself. How? Not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making His appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Now, just a side note, how can the church preach a message of reconciliation in the midst of division? Doesn't make sense, does it? But then we read also in Colossians 1, 19 and 20, for in Him, it means Christ and the Lord Jesus, in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. The Lord Jesus was not like us. He was perfect. Verse 20, And through Him, through His sacrifice on the cross, through His life, death, resurrection, ascension, and session, through Him to reconcile to Himself all things whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. This is the message of the gospel. You, you see that in and by the work of our Lord Jesus Christ, the whole creation will be restored. The goal of Christ's work is that the world might be put in perfect harmony, reconciling God and humankind, bringing reconciliation between human beings, and even the restoration of the whole cosmos in new heavens and new earth. You see, therefore, we can say that if the main problem of mankind is sin, their broken relationship with God and God's righteous condemnation, then it is obvious that against this dark reality, these bad news that we are all sinners and under God's righteous condemnation. Against this, 
there must be the good news, which is what gospel means. And these good news must address our main problem. You see, this is the problem. Let me give you just two examples. This is the main thing that is so wrong about what we call the prosperity gospel and the social gospel, that they are just two sides of the same coin. They do not address the main problem. They go around it as if it is possible to offer and to promise prosperity. Or on the other hand, to seek harmony on a social level. When we forget that our main problem is not the effort that we do to accomplish it or the level of our faith, but that we have a foundational problem which is called sin. And it is that foundational problem that needs to be addressed. And it is through addressing it that reconciliation comes. You see, two different approaches. But we need to address, the Gospel addresses the main issue, which is sin, in order to solve everything else. So if this is true, and it is, we should not be surprised then when our Lord Jesus Christ, who came in the words of Paul to the Colossians to make peace by the blood of His cross, when the Lord prayed for us right before He was arrested to be put to death in our place, that He used, for example, these words. This is not the whole prayer, but that His prayer included this. And I, I would actually invite you to open your Bibles in John 17 because I think it is important enough for the argument and for the sermon. John 17, 20 to 23. And please follow our Lord's words and what was in His mind reflected in how He prayed. Jesus is praying for His disciples. But he says this, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me. Brothers and sisters, have this in mind. That is a great promise. Not only Jesus prayed for you and me while we didn't even exist yet, but he was praying for us. According to Romans 8, he is praying for us now so that this might be true. And Jesus says, for those who will believe in Me through their word. So it is supposed it's a responsibility of the church. But now, verse 21. Why is Jesus praying for us? That they may all be one, just as You, Father, are in Me and I in You, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that You have sent Me. The glory that You have given Me, I have given to them. For what reason? So we receive God's glory. The church receives God's glory, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them, you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know 
that you have sent me and love them even as you have loved me. Brothers and sisters, what Jesus is saying is that God's glory given to the church by the Lord Jesus, it was given so that we might live in unity and be one so that the world may believe. You see, Christians, the ones that Jesus calls those who will believe in me, God's redeemed people have received the glory of God in order to reflect God's glory to the world. Such glory is manifested, is made visible by the unity believers experience with one another. Even more, it is this unity that stands visibly as a witness of God's glory in the unity that the Father, Son, and Spirit enjoy. This is how much unity means. It's not just a secondary aspect. It's not something that we want to achieve, but we don't pay too close attention. Basically, it is how the glory of God is revealed to the nations, is by the way that we live united in truth and in the truth of the gospel. And now we come to number three, a new redeemed people. First, remember this. Paul speaks in this letter to those who have been called. What does this mean? It means that he is speaking to Christians. He speaks for believers, not for non-believers. If they had not yet been called, Paul would be praying for their conversion and calling them to repentance and faith. But here he speaks to believers, for the ones who have already experienced reconciliation with God. And Paul says that as a reflection of their faith and call, as a reflection of the reconciliation that they already experienced with God, they are exhorted, verse 3, to make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit. But note this, they are called to keep what they already have, what they already possess. Does that make sense? So the church does not come together so that together we might achieve something. On the contrary, those who have been called, those who have believed, have been reconciled to God. And because they are already reconciled to God, they live and they manifest and make that unity and that reconciliation visible in the way they relate with one another. It's the play out of what they already are. It's not that they, so that they might become something. It is important also to note this, that the text we read starts with this word, therefore, right? It might be the first or the second word, but you have it there, therefore, which means on the basis of everything that I said so far, then you should live this way. So we cannot understand Paul's exhortation to unity, to this way of life within Christians, if we don't understand what Paul said before. And if we could summarize it pretty quickly, Paul said three things. He started the letter, and you can see in chapter 1, 
in the hymn in the first 14 chapters, or actually, to be more precise, from verses 3 to 14, that Paul starts by praising God for all of God's saving works. You will not find in this letter or any other letter a praise for people. Paul praises God because he knows that God's works of salvation are their hope. It's not about what they have done. It's about what God did. It's a list of what the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit had accomplished for them. Then he prays for the Ephesians so that they might continue. God might continue this work in them in the process of sanctification. But then, very importantly, turn to chapter 2. Because Paul wants them to know and never forget their identity in Christ. And he does that by contrast. See Ephesians 2. It has a contrast between what they were, so, and you were. Can you see that in your translations? It can be some, some different uh, words, but the meaning is the same. It starts that you were dead in your trespasses and sins. And basically Paul is saying, you were living like anyone else. So this is not that some people were born good and other bad. What Paul is saying is that without exception, including them, every one of them, we were all dead in our trespasses and sins. Why? Because all have sinned. Isn't it true? Is there anyone here that can claim that they are perfect? No. We have all sinned. But the difference then that we see in the text is that, okay, all have sinned, but some are doing an effort to be better. That's some people's understanding of the gospel. You try hard in order to get there. That's not what Paul is saying. Because see the contrast on verse 4. Verse 4 says this, But God, not a human invention, not human effort, but God, but God and see the characteristics that is given to God, being rich in mercy. Mercy is not paying someone according to what they deserve. So we were dead in sins, and although we deserved God's wrath and condemnation, God was merciful to us. He didn't pay us according to what we deserved. Why? Because, still verse 4, because of the great love with which He loved us. And even, verse 5, when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. The famous words and famous verse, because it's, it is so meaningful. By grace you have been saved. You see, it's God's mercy, it's God's love, it's God's grace. And He raised us up with Him. Then verse 8, for by grace again you have been saved. Through faith. Faith doesn't save us. It's just the instrument of we are not saved because of our faith. We are saved because of God's love, of God's mercy, of God's grace. We are saved because our Lord became like one of us 
and died on that cross for our sins. That's the reason of our salvation. Faith is just the means or the instrument that we take possession of salvation. It's not the reason. But then see verse 11, because the same contrast is presented. Therefore, remember, this is something that Christians need to hear all, all over again. At all times, remember, remember, remember. You know what you need to remember? Paul tells us. Remember that at one time, you were Gentiles in the flesh. It says on verse 12, you were separated from Christ. You were alienated from the people of God, from this commonwealth. But then it has what? But then you made a, an effort and you got it. Is that what the text says? No. Verse 13, but now, remember what you were. Because now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were afar have, be, have been brought near. And now you need to take to pay attention to the words and to the terms that Paul uses. See verse 14. He himself is our peace. He made us one. He broke down the hostility. He created, verse 15, in himself one new man, which is mankind. Verse 16, that he might reconcile us both to God in one body. You know what this means? It means the vertical aspect and the horizontal aspect. So we were reconciled to God, but we were brought in this union with Christ to one body. So we are one. We are united to one another. We have verse 18. Through Him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. There is oneness again. We are no longer, verse 19, strangers and aliens, but are what? Our fellow citizens. Paul says we are members of the household of God. You see, it is in this context that Paul says then in verse 3 that he was made a prisoner so that he could preach this message to all nations. Because you know what God's plan is? Just be in awe. Because we read this on verse 9 and 10. To bring light, this is Paul's mission, to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. So that through the church, brothers and sisters, through sinful people like you and me, but through the church, the manifold wisdom of God by, might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. God's wisdom is supposed to be made known by the church. That's why Paul says, walk in a worthy manner of your call. Because your call is high. It's calling people to reconciliation. God's glory has been given to us and it is to be made manifest and visible to the whole world. So we have, go to chapter 4 then, because 
after Paul had said, we can understand chapter four, uh, verse 4, which is the grounds why we should live in unity. There is one body, like Paul had said, in one spirit, as Paul has said, just as we were called in one hope, which belongs to your calling. There's one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Do you see, if we are believers, we must be ready to affirm this. We must be ready to be reminded and to affirm what we were and what we are. We should be ready to affirm things like this. Without God, I was dead in my sins and under God's wrath. I had no hope in this world and I would suffer eternal punishment. Do you believe in this? You should be ready to affirm, I was saved solely by God's work because of God's will and love and mercy and grace. There was nothing that I have done in order to be accepted by God. God did all for me, including giving His only Son on my behalf. Do you believe in this? Do you believe that you are fully dependent on God, not only for salvation, but for your life in every detail? You should be ready to say in His works of salvation, God united me to the Lord Jesus in order that I might receive all the blessings that He achieved for me. That all the blessings come from God. They are a gift Again, I did not achieve or deserved anything. That in God's work of salvation, I was adopted by God, Ephesians 1. I have become a son. I belong to a new family, to a new nation. I am part of the temple of God. Do you believe in this? If you do not believe these things fully, please come to me. Go to Pastor Thomas or one of the members of the church and we would be ready to share with you this message of reconciliation that you need to be reconciled to God. Please do. I would be eager to do that. But if you say, if you already say that you affirm and believe in these things, listen to Paul's exhortation on the first verse. Therefore, I, the prisoner for the Lord, exhort you to walk in a worthy manner of the call with which you have been called. If you believe in these things, you should be ready to say that on the basis of what God has done for you, that you exist and live, and live to please and glorify God in everything that you do. You should be ready to say, I have been united to Christ, adopted into the family of God, and as God's, a member of God's family, as a member of His people, as a part of the temple of God, I will make every effort to maintain the unity in the church to which Christ has purchased me with His own blood and for His glory." if we are ready to affirm that God has saved us in the way that He did, but we do not seek the unity of the church, we are just showing by our words that we did not yet understood what the gospel is. 
because we are preaching a reconciliation that we are not seeking to live. That's how serious it is. You see, as Paul said in chapter 2 of Ephesians, verses 15 and 16, for He Himself, the Lord Jesus, is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in His flesh the dividing wall of hostility and might reconcile us both, all of us, all nations, to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility so that we might live in peace both with God and with one another, you see. So with the exhortation, Paul tells us the way in which this unity has to be maintained, how this unity is made visible. See verses 2 and 3. In or with all humility and gentleness, with patience, putting up with one another in love, being eager or making every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. This is the way that we show if we are walking in a worthy manner of the things that we say that we believe. You see, these characteristics reflect or should be reflected in those who have been redeemed. You see, those who recognize their sin are humble. I'm just following the characteristics now. They are humble, not proud, because they know they were saved by grace. Those who recognize their sins and that their sins were forgiven by grace alone, they will be patient with brothers and sisters who sin, even if they sin against him or her. You see, those who understand how much they have been forgiven, they bear, they put up with one another. Those who have truly understood the meaning of the cross know the price that the Lord Jesus has paid to reconcile them to God, and they will be eager to keep the unity and peace in the church. You see, but this illustration also tells us, exhortation also tells us more, because this exhortation presupposes that we live in a broken world. Otherwise, there will be no necessity for exhortation. We would just do it naturally. But we still sin, and our brothers and sisters still sin, so that's why we are called to make an effort. You see, we would not be needed to be exhorted to be humble if we were not tempted to pride. And if we are not ready, and if we cannot recognize pride in our heart, that is the first step for living in pride because we all struggle and are tempted with it. You, you see, we would not need to be exhorted to be patient if we were not prone to irritation and anger. We would not be needed to be exhorted to put up with one another if it was easy for us. You see, we must accept as Christians living, still living in this world, and until Christ returns, that you and I will sin, and we will sin against each other. Am I saying then, just do whatever you want, and your brother and sister should just put up with you? No, that's not what I am saying. I'm just saying that in the process of sanctification, as we seek to be more like Christ, 
we should not only be ready to confess our sins, but also to extend forgiveness as it was extended to us. Brothers and sisters, if unity among the body is a representation of the faith that we profess, then we must be alert because the enemy will do all he can to divide us. Brothers and sisters, and I say this with all my heart, I thank God for the unity that we experience with one another today. I think that we have grown together in this area at Grace Baptist Church. But brothers and sisters, do not take the unity we experience for granted because Paul speaks about making every effort. Unity in the body is something we have to pursue and fight to achieve it. To preserve unity, the body must be alert and intentionally seeking for it. Remember, brothers and sisters, every time there are divisions, every time people abandon the church in conflict, the cross is being despised because Christ died so that we might be one. Every time we let our egos to be more important than the church, we despise the cross because Christ came to die for that same church that we believe that is not that important. Every time that we have dissensions, the devil laughs in mockery and contempt, and the cross is put to shame because the devil wants and takes pleasure in broken relationships. He is a liar. He is the accuser. He is the main divider. Brothers and sisters, we are about, are we, about to take the Lord's Supper? And we don't have, unfortunately, the table be before us just because of the special times that we live in. But remember, the Lord's Supper is a table. And that table represents our communion. Communion with the Lord and communion with each other. That's what we are representing. The Lord's Supper, and we have been led by Brother Seth in a series of studies on baptism and the Lord's Supper, and remember that these two signs that were given to the church also inherently mean unity. On baptism, we are united to Christ, so there is a representation as we are immersed in the water, dead for an old life, united to Christ for a new life. So we are incorporated in the family of God by baptism. And in the Lord's Supper, we make that representation repeated over and over again so that we might reminded, be reminded of what we were dead in our sins, saved by the blood of Christ and by the body, by the life that He offered to us so that we might be reconciled to God and to one another. So the Lord's Supper that, that we are about to partake together presupposes that we eat at the same table. We are one family, one people, one temple of God in union with Christ. The Lord's Supper presupposes that we all stand before God by grace. We did nothing to deserve the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper presupposes that we all eat 
of the same spiritual food, that we are all fully dependent upon God. No difference. The Lord's Supper presupposes that we all have one Lord who is far greater and far more worthy than any of us. So every time that our egos are put in second place for the sake of Christ, the gospel is being lived and proclaimed. Every time we seek to love each other, to put up with one another when necessary, when we extend forgiveness to our brother and sister, Christ is being proclaimed. Every time we seek the unity of the Spirit, we testify that we have been saved and that we are representing the eternal and perfect union that we will live with Christ and with each other. And I pray, brothers and sisters, that God might protect you, that God might help us as we pursue to walk in a worthy manner of the call that we have been called. And what a great call it is. And what a perfect and beautiful call it is. And what a great hope that we have that we are no longer condemned in our sins. But because of the Lord Jesus, His life, sacrifice on that cross, that we have life and a great hope. Let us live that with one another. May the Lord bless you.